0: Progress versus parasites by Douglas Carswell chapter 20 the rise of the technocratic state across europe and america have emerged pancontinental federations over the past 40 years presided over by bureaucratic forms of government increasingly remote from the people power that was once dispersed among european union member states or us states within the union increasingly resides within technocratic institutions based in either Brussels or Washington. There's been a profound change in the political economy of the West, with democracy giving way to technocracy. Quite apart from the political implications, this is already starting to have big consequences for free exchange. In Europe in particular, and to a growing extent in America, the production, purchase, sale, and consumption of almost all goods and services involves some sort of oversight, approval, permission granting, and control by some or other branch of government. Europe, and to a lesser degree America, are becoming less open and free and steadily more sclerotic. In 19th century Britain and America, government tended to be small, intervention limited and bureaucracy minimal. In the last two decades of the 19th century, however, some began to argue that government ought to do more. It was the example of Germany, we're often told, that prompted pressure for a more interventionist form of government. Recently unified, Germany was such a success story, apparently, that she was held up by some as an alternative model of the day. Something to be envied and emulated. By the 1890s, Germany had overtaken Britain in many measures. This had a profound effect on England, we're told, almost shaking her out of her Victorian sense of superiority. Germany was not so far behind the United States economically either. Across the English-speaking world, many began to ask if the German way of doing things with the state orchestrating from above might be better. Perhaps the mid-Victorian idea of a minimalist state was redundant. What was happening in Germany certainly influenced a number of American observers such as, for example, Woodrow Wilson, still at the time a mere professor at Princeton University. Like others, Wilson argued that public administration in America as in Germany, needed to be entrusted to experts, unconstrained by popular consent. America might have been given a form of government by her founding fathers as an agrarian republic but, according to Woodrow Wilson, that was unequal to the new task of what he and others termed scientific administration. What was needed according to the progressive movement that emerged in the early 20th century in America was a new fourth branch of government. The problem for the progressives was that the Constitution made absolutely no provision for any new branch of government whatsoever. According to the Supreme Court at the time, it was not permissible for Congress to delegate to others, their authority to make laws. This kind of constitutional constraint, proved initially pretty effective. The ambition to increase the shape and scope of government might have been there but the constitution thwarted the growth of government at least initially. Once Professor Wilson was in the White House he managed to create a Federal Reserve Bank. Progressives even managed to amend the constitution to allow a federal income tax to be collected for the first time. When mobilizing for the First World War, the Federal Administration might have managed to start planning and directing the economy in all sorts of new ways. But it wasn't until the 1930s that big government got its big break. It was the Great Depression that enabled many of the constitutional constraints that have frustrated an earlier generation of progressives to be set aside. Faced with a massive fall in output between 1929 and when he took office in 1932, America's new president, Franklin Roosevelt, managed to establish a vast alphabet soup of federal agencies. From the AAA, the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, to the CWA, the Civil Works Administration, and the WPA, the Works Progress Administration. Under the New Deal, the federal government created a system of centralized planning run by the NRA, the National Recovery Administration, to spur industrial production. In order to put in place the apparatus of a regulatory state, Roosevelt had to concentrate power in the hands of the executive and various new executive agencies. Previously, Congress had been required to approve the spending of any executive office. Instead, Roosevelt, having created dozens of new executive offices, granted himself the power to allocate them their vast budgets by executive order. At one time, he even threatened to pack the Supreme Court with new sympathetic judges to avoid having the judiciary frustrate his efforts to empower this new form of executive administration. Something rather similar happened in Britain at about the same time. The House of Commons, even more so than Congress, lost much of its meaningful control over public spending. In the 1930s, well before the outbreak of the Second World War, the standing orders of the House of Commons were changed so that MPs were no longer able to control how funds were allocated within overall spending estimates. Well before the outbreak of the Second World War, we can see significant changes that allowed the expansion of public administration into areas of social and economic life where previously no official would have got involved. But where did this urge to intervene come from? The drive towards bigger government, according to conventional accounts, came either from a desire to emulate Germany in the late 19th century, or else it came from the need to defeat her in the 20th century. Or at other times we're told it was born out of necessity when the economy slumped in the 1930s. The New Deal and the Second World War might help explain how government grew big but neither properly explains why it was that people wanted to create a much more proactive system of public administration in the first place. Nor does what happened in the 1930s and 40s do much to explain why some of the really big expansions in the role of the state have happened over the past 40 years. In 1960, when the Second World War was already a memory, Government spending in most European countries was about a third of GDP. In France, it was a little more than 34 percent. In Sweden, a little less at 31 percent. In the United States, it was slightly lower still at 27 percent. Half a century on, government spending in each of those countries before the Covid crisis had increased very significantly. Pre-Covid crisis, Public expenditure as a percentage of GDP stood at about 44% in Germany and not far off half of GDP in Britain and Sweden. The state spends almost 60% of GDP each year in France. Even in America, government spending pre-COVID had risen to about 37% of GDP. That would have seemed positively un-American to many only a few decades ago. In Britain today, a hodgepodge of government agencies exists, many known by their acronyms. Among them, ACE, or the Arts Council England, or BFEG, the Biometric and Forensic Ethics Group, or CQC, the Care Quality Commission, or DWI, the Drinks Water Inspectorate. In fact, there are so many of these wretched bureaucratic configurations that we seem to have run out of enough acronyms to name them all with at least two FSAs a Food Standards Agency and a Financial Service Authority. In America, there's a DHS and a DHHS, one presiding over Homeland Security and the other over Health and Science. Then there's HUD or an HRU and several hundred other agencies deciding public policy. Over the past three or four decades, government has become so big that it's outgrown conventional governance constraints. The various legislatures simply cannot keep track of all the decisions being made by every branch of government and bureaucracy. In Britain, not even ministers are aware of all the public policymaking going on within their own departments. To properly appreciate why liberal states have become so much more technocratic over the past generation or so, it's necessary to look at what happened not just in the 1930s and 40s, But to understand a change that has occurred in the nature of liberalism itself. The word liberal comes from the Latin liber meaning free. Liberal used to carry strong connotations of self-direction. A liberal society was one that was not ordered from above but a liberal economy shaped itself rather than being shaped by blueprint. This old idea of liberalism had its roots in empiricism and in scientific discoveries of the 18th and 19th centuries. Science had revealed much about the self-ordering nature of the world around us. Liberal thus knew that progress and order in the human world as well as the natural world did not need direction from above. A liberal was an empiricist who rejected the idea of authority with regard to knowledge In his famous essay on liberty, John Stuart Mills went out of his way to emphasize that none of us can claim intellectual infallibility. As the physicist Richard Feynman said of scientists, an old school liberal believed in the ignorance of experts. Far from believing in the ignorance of experts, social scientists today believe in their infallibility. Rather than empiricism, They take what David Deutsch, the physicist and philosopher, has described as an inductivist approach. A theory about the economy or society is formed. Observations are then made to try to find facts that fit the theory. Inductivism is not quite the same as uber-rationalism, a belief that it's possible to come to conclusions without empirical observations about the world. But it is a belief that such observations can be selectively presented to support a set of conclusions. This is why so often inductivists end up fitting evidence around a favoured theory and calling it evidence-based policymaking. It's a form of confirmation bias and it underlies the approach of many public policymakers in Britain, Europe and America. Old-school liberals avoided placing much faith in grand plans. Theories as to how to order human affairs were treated with scepticism and certainly not validated merely because of the weight of expert opinion behind them. The process of peer reviewing academic papers, widespread within university humanities departments these days, is a process of validation that relies almost exclusively on the weight of expert opinion. The confirmation bias approach of policymakers encourages groupthink, as well as overconfidence. It allows policymakers to overestimate their ability to understand the world and the inordinately complex economic and social systems within it. This has egged on the expansion of public administration. Empiricism once curbed the claims of small elites to be able to order society by design inductivism has returned us to the idea that a small elite has an authority of knowledge. It has given them an inflated ambition as to how they might engineer certain social and economic outcomes. This explains why a liberal in the contemporary American sense of the term is not someone that recognizes the importance of self-order at all. Far from it. A liberal in America today tends to believe that it's not only possible to engineer certain social and economic outcomes, but that without doing so any society will somehow be suboptimal. Not surprisingly, perhaps, the longer people are marinated in these ideas at their university humanities departments, the more inclined they are to hold faith in experts. And perhaps one might add, the less tolerant many then seem to be of those who think otherwise, From this, the urge to intervene has increased. If a bogus empiricism has corrupted liberalism through conceit, giving small elites a greater urge to intervene, a change made in the way that government manages money has given them the means to intervene with little constraint. Richard Nixon has gone down in history as a bad American president and rightly so. His name will forever be associated with the Watergate scandal when his cronies broke into the Democratic Party headquarters in Washington. But sanctioning a burglary was not the worst decision Nixon made in the Oval Office. Watergate might have made Nixon a crook but it was his decision to break the link between the dollar and gold on August 15, 1971 that enabled the growth of big government. By breaking that link, he also broke a fundamental fiscal constraint on government. The most effective constraint on the size of government is the link between taxation and representation. The American revolutionaries understood this, which is why they famously insisted that there be no taxation without representation. As long as taxpayers were represented and as long as taxpayers were expected to pay for any increase in government spending there would always be pressure to keep government small. No matter how successful Wilson, Roosevelt and all the others were at overturning various constitutional constraints, if the taxpayer had to pay for it there was a limit to the size of the federal bureaucracy that could be created. But what Nixon did was to break the link between taxation and representation so that government could spend without taxation on a vast scale. Often presented as a minor tweak ending an outdated monetary relic from the past, or as a pragmatic response to the inflationary pressures that came with fighting the Vietnam War, Nixon's decision was what made possible the subsequent emergence of the administrative state in America. Before August 1971, the US dollar was pegged to gold at a rate of US dollars 35 per ounce under what was called the Bretton Woods system. Under this international agreement, the American government was committed to backing every dollar overseas with gold. Crucially, this meant that the quantity of US dollars that the US government could put into circulation was limited by the amount of gold that the US government had. So many additional dollars have been created since then that an ounce of gold today is worth little more than 1,500 US dollars at current prices. The Nixon shock meant that the US government unilaterally cancelled the convertibility of the United States dollar to gold. From then on the United States government could borrow enormous amounts to finance deficit spending. With the US dollar now a fiat currency it was just a paper promise and the US government could make a great many of those. Doing so enabled the US government to keep funding the Vietnam War. Nixon's successors have been funding deficits to pay for all sorts of things ever since. To be sure governments have been able to borrow to cover any shortfalls between tax revenue and spending for centuries. In the 16th century, for example, the Dutch and the English issued bonds to help them wage war. What changed once the US dollar became merely a paper promise is the sheer scale of borrowing. After 1971, the only thing that constrained the amount of money in the economy was government. In other words, government was no longer effectively constrained at all. Setting a currency free sounds uplifting. But if it isn't bound to something external with independent worth, why should it retain its value? By the end of the 1970s, the US dollar had depreciated by a third. Inflation in America surged to 12% in the immediate aftermath of the Nixon shock. In Britain, it reached 24% by 1975. Inflation remained persistently high on either side of the Atlantic for a decade after Nixon's presidential announcement. America, of course, wasn't the only country affected. Under Bretton Woods, most Western currencies were indirectly tied to gold by their peg to the dollar. Once the dollar's link to gold was broken, currencies in most Western states became fiat money, mere paper promises. This meant that from August 1971 onwards, not just the US government, but governments in the UK, France, Japan and elsewhere could make as many paper promises as they pleased. And that, to put it crudely, is what they did France last balanced the books in 1974, three years after the Nixon shock. The UK government has managed to avoid a deficit in eight years since that time. Every other year it's spent more than it's raised in tax. In America since 1971, deficit spending has become the norm in peacetime in a way that it never was before. Since 2001, the national debt in America doubled from 8 from 6 trillion US dollars to 12 trillion US dollars by 2009 and is projected to double again to nearly 25 trillion US dollars by the mid 2020s. The really big sustained increase in the size of US government happened not during the first or second world wars. Not during Roosevelt and the New Deal, but in the decades since 1971. Many Western states had different sorts of welfare provision long before the 1970s, but it's really only since the early 70s that the vast network of redistributed programs through which government transfers wealth from one section of society to another have sprung up. In America, an increasingly technocratic system of government arose as the old constitutional constraints were sidestepped. In Europe, a pan-continental federation was created not by changing the nature of any existing system of government, but by establishing an entirely new one on top of it. A series of supranational institutions were put in place which were, by their very nature, above much meaningful public accountability from the outset. Under a succession of treaties in Europe, the Treaty of Rome 1957, Maastricht in 1992, Amsterdam 1997, Nice 2001, Lisbon 2007, the member states of what we now call the European Union delegated decision making to a new set of pan European institutions. From 1958, a European Commission came into existence, which was to have the power to make binding regulations that took precedence over any national law. In the half century that's followed, the European Commission has taken to producing each year a blizzard of rules governing many aspects of economic activity and social policy. Often introduced under the auspices of encouraging trade across Europe, the point has long been passed when it can be pretended that this kind of rulemaking is about facilitating intra-EU trade. That is merely the facade, the excuse. A European Court in Strasbourg is now the highest judicial authority within the EU and polices the system, all the while being mandated to rule in favour of ever closer union. The referee, the umpire, has a vested interest in a particular outcome. The European Court also enforces the doctrine of what is known as acquis communautaire, whereby an area of public policy that has been delegated to an EU institution is seen to have been ceded to them by the member states irrevocably. As you might imagine, this has resulted in a concentration of power. A European Central Bank manages the currency of those member states that have ditched their own currencies in favour of a common currency, the Euro. The European Central Bank, the ECB, sets interest rates and determines monetary policy on behalf of about 400 million EU citizens. Meanwhile, a series of federal EU agencies have enormous administrative power and are able to approve everything from new medicines to member states' budgets. As in the United States, once various constitutional innovations had enabled Roosevelt to create what was in effect an entirely new branch of government, the European Union has bequeathed to public officials in Europe the administrative means to order the affairs of an entire continent from on high. In the United States, the Nixon shock also delivered the financial means to fund all this extra government. In Europe too, pan-Europe institutions have had money allocated to them with only the most cursory accountability to any taxpayer. The European Union's own Court of Auditors has infamously refused to sign off on the EU's accounts for almost 20 years. If the directors of a publicly listed company were to do that, someone would end up in prison. Well in America the power of federal authorities has increased. They don't have quite the freedom that federal agencies have in Europe. Congress is still able to veto spending and even bring the whole federal bureaucracy to a standstill. No European Parliament possesses such powers or any sort of inclination to ever use them that way those that run various federal agencies in America are still appointed by those that Americans elect. EU agencies, on the other hand, are staffed by a cadre of officials immune to any sort of accountability. The Supreme Court of the United States, for all its apparent failings and controversies, still rules on the basis of what the Constitution says. Unlike the European Court, It's not in the business of agglomerating power at a federal level as an objective in itself. In Europe, even more so than in America, the idea that there is a Western model of limited government with free and open markets is starting to seem a little dated. There's a technocratic state that's grown up instead, and this is beginning to have all kinds of implications for economic expansion and innovation. Since 2009, output in China has increased by over 150%. In India, by over 100%. Even in the United States, output is up a very healthy 35%. And that's despite the coronavirus shock. In Europe, output in the Eurozone has fallen by 2%. Yet Europe was, within living memory, one of the fastest growing places on the planet. In the 1950s and 60s, output in Europe increased on average at 5.5% a year, faster than anywhere else apart from Japan. Economic indices showed Europe and Japan each becoming relatively more, not less, important in world economic affairs. Then about 30 or 40 years ago, something in Europe changed. Growth started to slow. Between 1950 and 1973, average output per person in Europe rose 4% a year. Since 1973, the rate of increase has almost halved. Decline is no longer merely relative, but by some measures now absolute. To be sure, slower economic growth as the post-war period of reconstruction came to an end was in some ways unavoidable. The easy gains in output that come from rebuilding bombed out cities and factories, financed in part, of course, by American martial aid, ran their course. But there was more to it than that. What also happened is that Europe became less open to free exchange. When we think of new emerging economies catching up economically, there's an implicit assumption that after an initial burst of growth, they'll slow down as they mature. A little bit like post-war Europe, the early gains in output per person don't last long as a country moves from agricultural to industrial production or simply urbanizes. But beyond that, why do we assume that a highly specialized mature economy must necessarily slow down? Surely what we know about specialization and exchange tells us that the more interconnected things become, the more growth and innovation there ought to be. Innovation and growth should surely accelerate, no? Far from growing weary with age like a body, a mature economy has a greater capacity for specialisation and exchange, allocating resources ever more effectively and increasing innovation exponentially. Yet instead Europe has done the opposite. She's slowed down compared not only to emerging economies, but to other advanced economies. As output in Europe fell in absolute terms after 2009, in America it went up by over a third, in Australia by about 60%, and in Canada by over 30%. To be fair, America and other Western European states at times also show symptoms of this same European ailment. When you look at per capita increases in output, the US picture is not as impressive as the raw GDP data suggests. She too is less open to innovation and exchange than she was. In the 1960s, US GDP increased at an average rate of over four percent a year. By the noughties, annual output was increasing by less than half that. The more pronounced the emergence of technocracy, the more evident the economic slowdown becomes. Over the past three decades in Europe, As a rough rule of thumb, those parts of the continent furthest removed from the technocratic EU machinery have generally performed the best. Switzerland and Norway, outside the EU altogether, have outperformed Britain and Italy inside. Britain, which had certain opt-outs from the EU even before the Brexit vote, has increased output faster than Germany or France. Turkey, too, outside, has outstripped phenomenally Greece. On the inside. Ironically many of those things that restricted free exchange in Europe have been introduced in the name of the free market or at least the EU's single market. Ostensibly about free trade the single market in reality handed enormous power to officials. Instead of enabling goods and services legally produced in one member state to be sold in any other, It ensures that goods and services can only be produced and sold anywhere if they comply with a common set of standards. It's the very opposite of liberalisation of the economy. All too often, common standards end up being drafted in a way that favours established vested interests. The European Union's single market, which was supposed to be about liberalising the European economy, turns out to represent the precise opposite. Labour laws across Europe restrict labour markets, making European producers less competitive. Regulation of energy markets has increased energy costs in Europe, pricing European companies out-of-world markets and creating all kinds of incentives for EU-based producers to lobby to restrict access to EU markets to keep out the competition. From food processing to car manufacturing to house building, multiple agencies determine what producers can sell to customers and on what terms. Regulation is routinely used in Europe by vested interests to prevent the emergence of new entrants, even if the price of doing so is less innovation overall. Compliance costs can be imposed to ensure smaller competitors can't compete. Despite all the talk about consumer protection. Much EU rulemaking is done to restrict supply in the interests of established suppliers. This is why big businesses employ armies of lobbyists to help write the rules in Brussels. Things in Europe have now reached a stage where there are many areas of economic activity where big producers in Europe no longer use their marketing budgets to try to persuade willing customers to buy their products at a price they're willing to pay. Instead, they put large chunks of their marketing budgets into lobbying regulators to ensure that their customers must buy from them on their preferred terms. Trade agreements that the EU strikes with third party countries might use the language of free trade, but they also have a nasty habit of stipulating on what terms trade might actually take place at all. They extend single market style mercantilism around the world. Far from freeing up trade, the single marketer choose the opposite. It has killed off innovation and intensive economic growth in Europe. Europe's economy has slowed down notably since 1992 and she's become ever less innovative. Three decades ago the 12 countries that then constituted what became the EU accounted for about 25% of global patents, Today that has fallen to a pitiful four percent. It's not just a case of other parts of the world becoming more innovative. Europe is falling behind with an absolute fall in innovation. Venice at the start of the 17th century was still one of the richest places on the planet. In terms of art and architecture, she was going through a golden age. Had you lived in Venice at that time the trappings of success would have been all around you life was pretty good and yet Venice had almost indiscernibly at first started her slow decline other parts of the world had started to take her share of the textile market in the eastern mediterranean venice was no longer the undisputed centre of book publishing either Nor had she produced any new technology or innovation in a couple of centuries or so. Venetian galleries might still have been good for travelling around that inland sea, the Mediterranean. But they weren't up to much in the way of ocean-going voyages, which were starting to have such vital importance. The idea that Venice might have been losing her top spot because others, like the Dutch or the English, were merely catching up, might have helped console those on the Rialto troubled by such things. But such excuses would have missed the point. Irrespective of how much others might have been speeding up, Venice was starting to slow down. So too is Europe slowing down today. Like those distant Venetians, Europe today is relatively prosperous. Living standards are, as a whole, higher than they've ever been. And many of those living in Europe are much better off than others living in other parts of the world. Which is one of the reasons why, like Venice, so many People want to come and live here. But Europe is no longer the centre of the world economy. Venice, which was once the economic hub of the Mediterranean, became just another city port. Europe, once the centre of the world economy, is well on her way to becoming just another peninsula on the Eurasian landmass. In global terms, you might think, None of this really matters. Venice stagnated, so innovation and industry merely moved elsewhere. Europe today might turn herself into a giant museum open to outside students and tourists. But others will avoid her mistakes. Humankind overall will progress. Perhaps. But the same sort of technocratic outlook and institutions that have done much to hinder innovation and exchange in Europe also underpin much of the non-European international order too. Set up after the Second World War, many of the institutions on which the global system of open markets and free trade exists, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the IMF, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, are not immune to the ambitions of small supranational elites who aspire to shape the world by design and blueprint. Those who set the agenda within these sorts of institutions Belong to a tribe that the American political scientist Samuel Huntingdon called transnationalists. These transnationalists increasingly, as he put it, see boundaries between nations as obstacles that thankfully are vanishing and see national governments as residues from the past whose only useful function is to facilitate the elite global operations. The risk is that the move towards technocracy goes supranational, a sort of EU operating at a global level. Already we've seen in recent years attempts to create supranational courts and institutions. Treaties are being signed like the Paris Treaty under the guise of tackling various global problems which invariably empower small elites to decide things that were once left to national governments. Our transnationalist elites presume to be in possession of insights and knowledge denied to ordinary mortals or indeed mere governments. Giving more power to unaccountable rulemakers inevitably means you end up with more rules. It's increasingly about ordering international affairs by blueprint and design. The idea of self-order between sovereign states is being steadily eroded. The essence of liberalism is surely self-government. It's a measure of how illiberal our international order is and how illiberal it's becoming that it is presided over by a system of supranational decision-making that often seems to treat the very idea of national self-determination with such contempt. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress vs Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.